In early Denver, newspapers were the media. At the end of the day, newspapermen gathered to socialize, play some poker, shoot some pool. They organized their own private club, the Denver Press Club. They had a clubhouse built, which still stands today and still functions as a social club and event center and celebrates the rich history of Denver's news reporters and newsmakers, which now includes electronic journalists and the fields of public relations and advertising. The Denver Press Club is the oldest continually operating press club in the country and sponsors and hosts a variety of entertaining and informative programs and events. This edition of the Denver Press Club is sponsored by the Denver Press Club and the Colorado Chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists. Hello and welcome to another BookBeat event from the Denver Press Club. Uh, my name is Bruce Goldberg, I'm board president of the Press Club. This series is brought to you by the Denver Press Club and the Colorado Chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists. And today, I am a aficionado of uh, General George Armstrong Custer and the Little Bighorn Battlefield and out with the book, Finding Custer, are our co-authors, uh, Professor Stephen Powers and Kevin Dennehy of the Denver Press Club. And this has just been a fun read since I've been up there three times and, and familiar with a lot of what you had here. But welcome to the club. And let's, let's talk about Finding Custer a little bit. Maybe we'll get to D-Day Assault too. Maybe you came in, that came out well, in the last year or so. Now the natural question is, there have been so many books done about Custer. Why write another one? What is it you bring to the table that maybe other people didn't? Kevin, do you want to answer that? <laughs> well, you know, uh, T.J. Stiles, a Pulitzer Prize winning author, just came out with a book. So it's a very good question. Why another book on Custer? He was the most photographed uh, man of the 19th century. Um, he's an enigma. Uh, in the last 30 years, he's gotten kind of a bad rap from uh, movies and the media. And uh, we just felt that, uh, that uh, there's some more dialogue to be be said about uh, Custer and some other um, other issues. Maybe he isn't the the bad 19th century uh, man that he's portrayed to be. Well, as you pointed out, the things that he did, which we, we recoil at today, were the norm back then. Right or wrong, they were the norm. Well, they were one of the norms. There were a lot of people, um, especially east of the Mississippi River, who thought that the federal government's Indian policy was atrocious at the time. And they were vocal and, um, and published in newspapers in the East, you know, criticizing the policy. And of course, Custer was the instrument of the army and the instrument of the federal government who was, who was you know, applying the policy. And, um, which was to, you know, somehow, you know, subdue the Native American population. It's a shame, looking back today, that we couldn't have done it in a different way. That is, you know, settle the West, the, the, the Plains, and uh, without the Indian Wars. But it's hard to see how that could have taken place. 
when I, when I taught this, and taught this, I taught U.S. military history at UNC for a number of years, and when I got to this aspect, I always asked the class to come up with a solution that didn't involve, you know, you know, Indian wars, you know, fighting with the tribes, and um, and um, they never were able to. We tried a bunch of things. The United States government did, none of them worked, and so finally the military solution was the one that came to the fore, and Custer was the instrument, one of the instruments. There were quite a few other, you know, generals and officers involved. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the stark detail of some of these attacks by Indian villages, countered by the stark details of Indian attacks on settlers, uh, they're, they're really gut-wrenching. You know, there's just mass slaughter and torture and, and even killing or stealing of all the ponies, depending on which battle we're talking about. The, the battle at the Washita down in Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't the only time that that took place, but it was, uh, it's mentioned in the book, in our book specifically, because we take you to the Washita battlefield. And um, those, the bones, from all of those horses that were killed while the battle was underway and the slaughter of the Indian, the Cheyenne horse herd at that time, those bones were still there on the ground in 1935. And they used them for fertilizer. And then they yeah. sold them for fertilizer yeah. in, in 1935. I, and the reason I can remember that date so specifically is that I was born in 1935 and I thought, yeah, Here's a connection between uh, myself and and that battlefield down there, and and you know that's Washita's got a beautiful monument uh, building that they've put up and uh, museum and so on. And I don't think it's you know widely visited. It's off the beaten track. The battlefield that obviously attracts most people that involves Custer in the Indian Wars was the Little Bighorn. But then Custer fought at Gettysburg, and that's where he made his reputation was at the Battle of Gettysburg. You know, in looking at his history, <clears throat> this is the guy who got into West Point thanks to the largesse of a, some sort of benefactor, some sort of helper. Right. He finished last academically out of how many? Was it 46 people in his class? Is that the right number? He was constantly, he, he ran up a record number of demerits. He was constantly being disciplined, but somehow he knew when to stop, when to get serious again. And yet, a few years later, he's a respected military leader and someone on the rise, and someone who, who has got to be known nationally, as you mentioned, the most photographed person in the 19th century. I didn't, I'd never known that. Well, he's not the only you know, famous yeah, but he's the one academy, you're academy um, <laughs> uh, graduate who finished last in the class. Um, William Halsey graduated, he was the anchor man, as they call him at the Naval Academy, at the Naval Academy in okay. his class, and then became, you know, one of the, you know, great American admirals of World War II. And some of these guys like, you know, like uh, Halsey or Custer, are just not very academic. Either that or they just don't sit well under the kind of authority and, and um, regimen that they have at the service academy. So they kind of chafe against it and that gets them in trouble all the time. And 
But what did these, what did Custer have though? Okay, it wasn't a love of academics, but what did he have that so all of a sudden this guy is one of the best known people, one of the greatest leaders, military leaders in the nation. What, what were the qualities that came out after he was loosened from West Point? The interesting thing, he, was a, he, was a, he came from very humble beginnings in uh, New Rumley, Ohio, and uh, I grew up in Monroeville, Michigan. Um, when he started out in the Civil War, and, and we, we mentioned this in the book, uh, and as you said, Bruce, the, he had this, the, the record demerits at that time at the U.S. Military Academy. He had a series of uh, commanders that took him under his wing. One was uh, George McClellan, who was a very controversial figure himself in the, the Civil War and also Alfred Pleasanton who was our chief of cavalry in the Civil War. And they were both father figures to, uh, to Custer. And it just goes back, a lot of famous people do have somebody that they take under the wing. And Patton, George Patton, uh, Pershing in World War I is an example as well. Mm -hmm. of those those uh, generals that take care of their, their younger subordinates. And of course the, the, the general that took Custer under his wing and um, that probably made the biggest difference not only during the Civil War but then throughout the Indian War period too was, um, was Sheridan who was Grant's cavalry commander after Pleasanton um, got sent west and, uh, and Sheridan made the statement at some point later that about Custer, that he was the only um, he was the only officer he'd ever had that never let him down. Interesting. Custer yeah. was he had, and this comes from T.J. Styles' latest biography of Custer came out last fall called Custer's Trials, and he makes the point that, that was very interesting that Custer had this image of himself as you know you know was going to be a hero and that he spent the Civil War and then most of the rest of his career, the 10 years after, trying to live up to his own image of himself. And uh, he, the man was personally brave. There was something going for him called that, they, that people around him referred to as Custer's luck. How could you get I don't know how many horses I'd lost count finally. He got shot out from under him in the Civil War. And then out on the plains, he was trying to chasing a buffalo with a pistol and managed to shoot the horse. The horse stumbled and the buffalo veered and he shot the horse that he was riding and tumbled and, and uh, landed on the ground and looked up and the buffalo was standing there looking at him, this big bull buffalo, and the buffaloes kind of shrugged and ran off. You know, how lucky can you get? <laughs> yes, yes. And, and not only, not only was, did he have, I don't know, how many horses did you, did you ever count them up that he got shot out of from under him? But a, a half a dozen at any rate. Two or three at Gettysburg alone. Yeah, and half a dozen at any case. And he was wounded a number of times, but never seriously. Just, just wounded enough that he could, get leave to go back to Monroe, Michigan and continue his courting of his to-be wife, Libby. <laughs> so so the, the, the wounds may not, have, since they weren't serious, may have worked to his you know, ultimate advantage in that regard. And he's also, as you pointed out, was 
on occasion like a Forrest Gump type figure, because let's see, where was he? He was in the Gettysburg ba uh, battle. He was at Appomattox Courthouse right. when the, they signed the papers to end the Civil War. Okay. And he knew, of course, he knew Grant. Uh, he knew Buffalo Bill Cody. Cody was with him on, on uh, some of those buffalo, some of those famous buffalo hunts, right, right. Yes. involving Russian princes or, or various foreign dignitaries. Sure. Um, so he, he knew some interesting people, and they can say they knew him. Uh, but you know, in reading the timeline, it's just it's just amazing. He'd get this time off when he needed it, and tw I read at least twice he had a year off. That's right. Which would be, I think, unheard of today. I don't know, you were in the military, I don't know. But well, he went AWOL, wants to see his wife, and uh, he had some very big benefactors uh, to go, get him out. He was, a, he was this guy that wanted to go where the action was, and a lot of people didn't during those times. And if you have a, a soldier like that, it's, it's, it's worth your weight in gold. Uh, he was court-martialed. He, he, he went AWOL trying to visit Libby, and I think Sheridan, or, or uh, Sherman, actually, the general of the army, interceded for him. So At Sheridan's request. Right. Sheridan was planning the campaign against the southern tribes that led to the Battle of the Washita. And, um, and Sheridan knew who Custer was and, uh, and what he could do. And he wanted him as his field commander and not the... Um, commander who would you know normally have done it so he arranged to get Custer out of um, you know to, to have him. he he was actually suspended from the army for a year after that court martial that that um, Kevin was talking about and uh, and he got Custer recalled after about six months or so and and he came back to Kansas and then took command of the um, 7th Cavalry again and then they marched in November of that year, you know, down to Oklahoma and attacked the Indian camps down there. So. What year was that again? Washington? That was uh, 1867. And there was probably was a short, wasn't there, after the Civil War was over, a shortage of good leaders like, like that and thus that was one reason he was brought back early? A lot, a lot of them reverted back to their old ranks. We, we have a a section in the book called Brevet Ranks. Right, so, yes. And uh, it's very confusing. Some people don't know very was, much about it. I was uh, very confused by it. <laughs> we tried to shed some light on it, and we're both confused ourselves. We yeah, we're not sure that we, we, we did much in the way of shedding light in that section, but we thought we ought to put it in there to give it a, give it a whirl. In any case, the, um, the, a lot of what you read in military histories of the time about Brevet Rank is that it was a, an honorary rank. And it was more than an honorary rank. Custer was breveted to brigadier general, you know, at age 23, um, not because of they were trying to honor him, but because the job that needed a general officer, a commanding officer, commanding a brigade, went to someone with who was a brigadier general. And so Pleasanton had these three men on his uh, staff, three, three young officers, and he just, he, he thought were extremely competent, and they probably all three were. Um, and uh, he wanted, he needed commanders for this new brigades because they'd just reorganized the cavalry. And so, you know, Custer 
gets bumped. And as I say, it wasn't to, to honor him in any way. It was because they needed a, what he thought was going to be a really competent commander to head a brigade, and that required um, a star. He was also and, a bit of a shameless self-promoter, wasn't he? He was. You know, really always reaching for the next rung up in society and for fame. And, and he did. He did do that. And I think it comes out more later than it does during the... the um, the earlier Civil War period, I think, than the Indian Wars and so forth. He, um, it was, Kevin was talking about earlier, there was a reporter, you know, a reporter went along on, on his Yellowstone expedition, on his Black Hills expedition, and then there was a reporter or two along on the, on the uh, ride that ended up at the Little Bighorn. And the reporter there died. And he was with Custer and Custer's wing of the Seventh Cavalry when, like when, when they, um, when they were all, when they were all killed. Was he carrying a weapon? Do we know? The reporter that is. Sure. That is interesting. I never thought about it. Um, I've never, I've never run across anything in all the reading that I've done on Custer that indicated that he was. But he would have been a fool if he hadn't been carrying some sort of weapon. I mean, I, w I would have thought he would have been armed in some way, but he was, the Indians, the, the Sioux and the Cheyenne at the Little Bighorn didn't consider him a non-combatant. Obviously not, and he can't stand him. So, so he might as well have been carrying, I mean, he wasn't gonna violate the Geneva Convention in any way. He still have as a journalist today, I mean, in harm's way. Yeah. yeah, and he was, and he was out there. But there were a number of civilians of, of not, not just a number, but a lot of civilians along with the 7th on that march to the Little Bighorn. Um, think of all the, um, the Cree and Crow scouts. Uh, there were uh, white scouts that were along. The, the, none of these people were actually in the military. I mean, you know, they were not considered part. They were just auxiliaries attached to the 7th and, and paid for the job in some way. And, and um, Were all these civilians killed at the Little Bighorn too? Uh, Custer did an interesting thing when, I, when he realized that, that what was going to happen to them, that they were so badly outnumbered and in the, the kind of defensive perimeter that he tried to set up was probably not going to hold. He released the um, Indian scouts with him, and um, one of the one of the um, half-breed scouts made the decision to stay with Custer, and died as a result of it. Another. Uh, Crow scout by the name of, it comes down to us as Curly, um, a young kid, he was 17 or 18 or something like that, left and rode east from the Little Bighorn battlefield, turned a couple of miles away on a, on a ridge or a rise over there and looked back and saw the end and then rode down to the Yellowstone River and, and tried to but there was nobody, he couldn't speak English, Curly, and uh, 
nobody that he ran into when he got to the mouth of the Yellowstone, or not, not the mouth of the Yellowstone, but the mouth of the uh, uh, Bighorn, uh, could speak crow. And so he tried to pantomime what had happened, and they thought, oh, he, you know, we're misunderstanding it. It didn't happen. So nobody believed him and until finally some other people wandered in and, and said that, you know, this is what happened to Custer. Remember that Custer's wing was you know, somewhere between 200 and 210 men, and uh, the whole 7th Cavalry force was more like around you know, 600 or something like that, 800. Including scouts, including civilians. And, and, and the, yeah, there were people back with the wagon train who were, who were civilians. Um, Custer had his um, uh, nephew and a younger brother who were not in the military. They were long and they, who died at the Little Bighorn. And, um, you know, so there were a lot of people there other than just members of the 7th Cavalry. But, I didn't and some of them died and some of them didn't. I didn't realize that the brother and the nephew were not in the military. Mm -hmm. And there was another brother of Custer who died same day who was, or Tom yeah. was in the military? Tom was a, a captain and a company commander. Right, he was a Medal of Honor. Okay. He, he won the Medal of Honor twice. He's one of that little select group of 30 or 40 men who actually won the Medal of Honor twice. The Medal of Honor was given out after the Civil War you know, for you know, different reasons than than and and many more of them given out. I think early on than are given out today. And interestingly enough, in in we talk about this in in our book on Normandy, uh, the uh, Medal of Honor's given out for D-Day were one per division. That was all you're going to get. So you picked the division commander, picked the guy who deserved the Medal of Honor, and and uh, he got it. And and the other 20 people who deserved the Medal of Honor for that, what they did on D-Day in 1944 didn't get the Medal of Honor. They got some silver star or something like that, but not the Medal of Honor. But they were much, much, they gave them out, in other words, you know, for many more things. There were a number of Medal of Honor, Medal, Medals of Honor given out to the 7th Cavalry that survived the battle and that were with Reno or Benteen or the pack train. And you know, in the book you talk about Benteen dawdling that day to get where he was supposed to go. And what I was wondering is, is in what way was he dawdling? Why was he dawdling? Uh, what was he, uh, did he figure, I know what's going to happen, I'm not going to get us all killed? Benteen hated Custer yeah. from the first moment he met him at, at Fort Riley in Kansas, you know, 10 years before. And, um, and he never ceased hating Custer. And any, I say this at uh, some point in the, in the book, and any rational organization, which the United States Army wasn't, in the 19th century or, or during this period, Custer would have had Benteen transferred. Benteen would have asked for a transfer, but once you were assigned to a regiment, that was sort of it. He had a group of officers that some of them were like Tom Custer, his brother, and, and uh, another one of his officers who was um, married to, you know, into his family and, and that supported him and idolized him. And then there was another group, and, and Benteen being the, the best known of these 
officers that if, if they didn't hate Custer, they disliked him because they thought he was, you know, too much of a, of a publicity hound and, um, and, you know, so on. But, um, but Benteen hated him and then Benteen found, had an excuse because a second in command in the seventh at the Battle of the Washita left without orders and took 19 troopers with him to chase some Indians off the battlefield, right in the middle of the battle. And um, they didn't realize that there were Indians camped, thousands of Indians camped downstream from the, from the Black Kettle's camp, the one that they attacked. And uh, these guys were surrounded and killed. And Custer sent a few people down to see if he could, they could locate him, and they rode out, and there were Indians down there, so they came back and said, no, we couldn't, we don't know what happened to them. And later, Custer left the battlefield in, in was maybe his smartest military move. He was vastly outnumbered at the Washington, and, and they just at dusk, the, he mounted everybody up and they started downstream toward the other Indian camps and all the warriors thought they were going to attack those camps and they took off to protect the, the, those camps and then Custer reversed direction and then left the Washita Valley and marched you know most of the night and got to his pack train and and they finally about dawn they stopped and had breakfast and and um, so he managed to get his force out of a very difficult situation but Benteen said he deserted his second in command and those guys who were long dead, even long dead before Custer, you know, left the scene. And uh, the question is, does Custer have stayed and tried to, you know, find these guys or should he have taken care of the rest of his command and gotten them out of a sticky situation that they were in at that point? And he didn't know how outnumbered he was, but there were enough Indians attacking him in the Washita. They'd formed a perimeter, and uh, there were they could see enough warriors out there, knowing they they knew they were badly outnumbered. And and most people think that he did exactly the correct thing. Benteen used as an excuse that Custer deserted, you know, his own men and let them left them out there on the battlefield to die and et cetera. In the movie, uh, Son of the Morning Star, was that David Strathern who played uh, Benteen? I, so. I remember him, the well, character that character he played actor, was, yeah. the character that he played was right. constantly angry with, uh, with Custer. Uh, well, speaking of being outnumbered, it, you know, the popular mythology, or maybe it's true, is that uh, they were greatly outnumbered at the Battle of the Little Bighorn, and he was, Custer was informed of this numerous times, and yet he thought he could win this battle, or is that? There's a lot of estimates between 1,000 and 5,000, depending on who you talk to. Aunt Stephen Ambrose, different historians throughout the years. Um, what did we put, Steve, on our, our book? How many? We didn't actually, we, we, we didn't actually go, we didn't even actually, uh, Broached that subject of how many Indians. There were a lot of them, but uh, um, even if it was just a thousand. That's still right, right. Four and a half times what sure. what he had. And um, and well, and and and, and but Custer's mistake um, was that that um, 
he just underestimated his foe. And yeah, there were Indian scouts who said, uh, there are a lot of Indians and they're acting very strangely. Um, we know everybody knows of, of Benteen's lagging and in support of Custer. I don't know that Benteen's 120 or so men would have made any difference in what happened. If he had joined up, you know, tried to, and he could have done it. It's obviously Benteen could have joined Custer's wing and reinforced it. And um, I don't know if it would have made any difference given the odds against them. And um, one, one of the interesting things that I turned up, and, and um, this comes from the archeological investigations that have been done of the battlefield the last 20 or 30 years, and, um, and an analysis of the firearms and so forth, which we have a section on in, in, um, in our guide that um, the Indians probably had, and this is not my estimate, this is a firearms estimate who has, you know, gone over the, the shell casings that they found on the battlefield, but he estimated that the Indians had about 200 repeating rifles that they either were uh, Spencer's or, uh, or Henry's or the newer Winchester's they may have even had. And um, that's one repeating rifle for every man in Custer's command facing them. And Custer was, you know, his troops were armed with the latest army single shot, <laughs> single shot uh, Springfield rifle, and um, that the Indians just could bring more firepower to bear, and, and um, another hundred Springfields that Benteen might have brought to the battle. I don't know we're going to make that much difference given the number of weapons they had out there against them. Of course, the Gatling guns, right? That's the next question. The way <laughs> no, leave no. the Gatling guns behind. Well, well mm -hmm. I saw that in the book that, yes, he right. left yeah. behind the Gatling guns. Right. But, but the Gatling guns were always awkward and they Very broke heavy. down. And, and, and if he'd had them with him, they would have been back with the pack train and out of the battle in any right. case. That was my conclusion at any rate after reading a lot about about the uh, Gatling guns. And, uh, of course, the, the, the big question is what if he had them for regular use, out front, how much of a difference would that have made on that day? Of course, you can't answer that, but it's a, it's a great speculative question. They might have convinced the Indians that they were coming up against too much firepower, and they might have backed off. That would have been, it's not that they would have killed that many, you know, warriors charging them with the Gatling guns, but who would want to try to ride into a, a, a Gatling gun? We know, you know, a couple of generations later what happened to the British at the Somme when they went over the top in the trenches and, and, and attacked the German trench line and the Germans, you know, opened up on them with their machine guns and um, and uh, who would have, the Indians just might have not wanted to try to, you know, go in and, and, and charge, say, against Reno like they did if Reno had had a Gatling gun with him firing at him. It, it might have been just too intimidating. And um, Did Reno survive that day? Did Benteen survive that day? Or were they and all their men killed? They both did. Both survived. They both survived. So much both. controversy later in their careers. 
Yes. Were they that far away from where the fight, where the battle was? Where, where the where the Custer? Yeah, the last stand. Yeah. No, no, they weren't. And um, and there was they they even made an effort led by um, uh, a captain of one of the companies named Ware to move toward where Custer and his men were surrounded and being massacred. And um, neither Reno nor Benteen had the, you know, the fortitude to continue on. And so they turned back to the defensive position a mile or two back behind them and to the south. And where stayed on this point, which is now known as Ware Point, a little longer. And then he saw, you know, the wave of mounted idiots coming toward him and the other two companies going back the other direction. So he pulled out as well. So there, there was never a really concerted effort for them to try to join with Custer. And they took a defensive position back on what is known as Reno Hill. and. Um, and fought off the Indians for the next, what, 24, 36 hours. Is that near the town of Garyon current day? I can't remember. So what happened yeah. to their reputations when there was this all over and people found out that they didn't go to the aid of Custer and that they survived? And, and there, you mentioned there was controversy. There was official, uh, official court-martial of Reno. Um, one of, uh, one, the 7th Cavalry commander was Colonel Sturgis. He didn't fight in the, the battle, but his son, was at the battle. He was a, a young West Point graduate, and he perished at the battle. And Sturgis always, always had uh, a vendetta against Reno. And uh, there's a, a base, a post. We call them posts in the army. A post in South Dakota, Fort Meade, where the Seventh Cavalry was. And Sturgis commanded that. And, and Reno was there as well. And he tried every time to get him court-martialed. And I think he ultimately succeeded after a while. Well, Reno apparently fell in love with his daughter and was, was seen, was seen peeping, daughter, yeah. peeping in the window of, of the colonel's house right, and yeah, his yeah. daughter. And That's that, led to, that led to, and, and by this time Reno was drinking heavily and Benteen drank very heavily after this as well, whether he was doing it before. Alcoholism was a, was a fairly common ailment in the, in the uh, post-Civil War army on these posts. There was not a lot to do but drink, and it was, same thing was true among the enlisted men as in the offices, whereas bad wear who died of alcoholism, we think, uh, a few years after the Little Bighorn, uh, Reno ends up getting court-martialed and drummed out of the army, and Benteen ends up as an alcoholic and is, gets discharged as well. So none of these guys came to particularly happy ends after the... Um, the, the initial feeling in the army and in President Grant was is that uh, Custer had screwed up and that the death of all these guys was, you know, because, you know, of, you know, his thirst for glory and all of that kind of thing. Um, and uh, it's only later as a result of um, Libby Custer, his wife, and her efforts that his reputation is, you know, mended 
and um, and but historians today um, don't um, don't fault him for what took place at the Little Bighorn as badly as as you know some 19th century uh, writers did. They um, and as I say, this is largely uh, the result of of a guy named Whitaker who. Uh, wrote a first biography of Custer and actually got it out before the end of 1876. And he had spent a lot of time talking to Libby, or she spent a lot of time talking to him. He was a Pulp Fiction writer, and but a Civil War veteran himself. And uh, that two-volume biography, which has been reprinted, is, um, is still worth reading, but it's very pro, you know, Armstrong. And, 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 and Libby, by the way, called him, you know, Audie, which was his childhood nickname. And lots of other people referred to him by his middle name, Armstrong. It's practically, or, or General Custer or Colonel Custer, but even though he was a, now a colonel, a lieutenant colonel in the post-war army, he, he kept his brevet title even if he didn't keep his, so he was General Custer to, um, you know, people that uh, had to deal with him and so on. And every other officer in the army did the same thing. There's this long battle over, you know, brevet rank after the war, whether you could keep it or whether you could keep the, the rank as a, as when you were addressed. If you once been a brevet general during the Civil War, but now you were a major, could you still be referred to in the, in the post-war army as general, and, and of course the people that had the rank said yes, yes. and everybody else said no, and so the, it goes, Congress finally had to step in and set the rules. Okay. Let, me, let me move to, um, the, the, the argument can be made that the road to Little Bighorn began right here in Colorado. Um, let me read from, from page 51. Uh, in Kansas, Custer was thrust into one of the Indian wars that had been raging all along the western frontier since the early 1860s. On the southern plains, outraged by the attack of Colonel John Shivington's 3rd Regiment of Colorado Volunteers on the camps of Black Kettle and White Antelope at Sand Creek, Colorado Territory in November 1864, Cheyenne and Arapaho war parties interdicted traffic along the Platte and Smoky Hill trails, going so far as to attack and then burn Julesburg, Colorado in January 1865. And 11 years later is the Battle of Little Bighorn. And in between are these events that seem to fall like dominoes and lead to the Little Bighorn. Is, is, do you agree with that? Is that how you see some of this history? Kevin, what do you think? Gosh, my opinion about it, it was a, it was a sustained campaign um, with different uh, Indian tribes, with different, with different cultures. Um, but it was, uh, it was definitely a part of our whole, uh, I mean, as Steve was saying at the beginning, it was, it was a 19th century way to grab their land, basically. But it was, it was a military campaign. Because it, 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 it just, uh, as these events unfolded, it was inevitable it was going to wind up, it seemed, at Little Bighorn. It all seemed to begin right here. You well, know, yeah, the, the, the immediate right. beginning, but you have to realize that the Indian Wars began back in the 17th century, and uh, 
when our pilgrim forefathers oh, massacred the Pequot right. Indians, rounded them up in a, I mean, yeah. surrounded them in a swamp, and they had a, Indians had a little stockade in the swamp, and they, uh, they burned the stockade and slaughtered the Pequots, and I mean, to, slaughtered them. I mean, they, you know, they shot them all. I'm sure some got away, but, but the uh, campaign, and, and, and that was, you know, back in, you know, 16, 1630s. Maybe what and, I should um, say is, is that what happened in Sand Creek seemed to be a turning point. It seemed, right. it seemed like a very important historical marker in what happened from what happened before to what was going to happen next. Well, the Indians, the southern total, tribes total objected to the opening of the Santa Fe Trail, which was in 1820, in 1820s when you know wagons began to move out along the Santa Fe Trail, and the Army established um, uh, Fort Dodge and a number of other forts, uh, Larned, and, and uh, to protect the wagons on the Santa Fe Trail. When the Civil War broke out and the Army withdrew most of the troops from those western forts that had been established, Fort Laramie was already there, um, the Indians took advantage of that and, and tried their, their best to shut down you know, any more traffic along the Oregon Trail now to the north or the Santa Fe Trail to the south. And um, the war ended and uh, the Homestead Act had been passed by Congress during the Civil War and there were, you know, settlers, long-term American settlers. It's interesting that people from New England moved to the Middle West and then their children or grandchildren then, you know, moved to uh, Missouri, and then some of those, you know, descendants of people moved again, and this time they wanted to go to Oregon, or, and, um, and so there was this whole Western migration, and the f state and federal governments were supporting it. I guess Bruce is saying, is it, was it inevitable? I mean, yeah, big, and, this last stand. and, you know, the Indians that fought the Little Bighorn, you know, that sort of, it was their last stand, by the way, that was the, the, in a sense, the stupidest thing that they could do. It's like the Japanese attacking Pearl Harbor. Nothing could have been designed by the Japanese to more infuriate Americans than that attack at Pearl Harbor, and nothing upset and infuriated Americans more than the slaughter of the part of the 7th Cavalry and Custer at the Little Bighorn. And so in the aftermath of the Little Bighorn, the army really got serious and and they put those Indians on the uh, reservation and kept them there and one band under Sitting Bull escaped for a time to Canada but the Canadians didn't know what to do with them and sort of wanted them to go back to the U.S. where they thought they belonged and eventually they did and went on the reservation as well. But think about it for a moment. 1876, the Battle of the Little Bighorn, June 25th, 1876. There were automobiles being manufactured in the late 1890s, 20, less than 25 years later, less than a generation later. 1905, the first airplane yeah. flies. There were already telegraph had been around forever, but now there were also telephones, and the telephone network was going to be developed. And and, um, and here were 
these, and I understand, and Custer understood it. So he said, if I'd had a choice, I'd have fought too at one point, and um, that the life out there on the plains, you know, freedom and chasing buffalo and so on was, uh, was a, kind of a great life, and said, but, but it was gonna come to an end. Yeah. It was gonna come to an end a lot quicker than, uh, and, and some of the Indians realized, the Red Cloud and, and, um, and others uh, realized that, that they weren't gonna be able to continue this nomadic life and so on, the buffalo was gonna go and, and the railroads were gonna put an end to, um, to uh, that kind of life and they were willing to make the compromises but then there were Gaul and Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull who weren't willing to face the music, in other words, face the fact that their life was gonna end. Resistant until? And uh, they were gonna resist. And, and to think about it for a moment, they're, they're the Indian heroes, you know, they're heroes of the resistance in a sense, but they cost their people hundreds if not thousands of lives because of that, you know, resistance that they were willing to put up. And it, can, can, you, can you imagine the Indians still being out there, you know, roaming around and, and trying to find buffalo or raiding the settlers in Kansas and so forth in 1900 when they're running automobiles on the streets of New York and going to fly airplanes pretty shortly. It's just, you know, it's just the, the world was changing and they weren't, some of them weren't willing to change with it. It's a shame that, that uh, the Native Americans weren't willing to just accept what was going to happen to go on reservations and make the best of it. And maybe making by, by not having resisted, they might have gotten a better shake from the federal government. I think that everybody was pretty angry after the Little Bighorn. I mean, I mean, the American, you know, European population was pretty angry at them. And, and, um, and also in that, in that era, 1876, um, word was slow to get out. If I read this correctly, uh, June 25th was the battle. Word got out publicly July 5th. Is that so? It took right. took two weeks to get word out to the United States at large. Right. What happened? It was a big disaster at that time. I mean, yes, a major disaster. Well, well, what, what? Um, the, the way that took place, there are some historians, some writers who say that the Indian grapevine reported the disaster of the massacre at the Little Bighorn or the Battle of the Little Bighorn and the defeat of Custer there. Um, and, you know, back to the reservations much quicker than any kind of official word went back. But the way the official word went back, one of the ways that it went back was that the wounded from the Little Bighorn were taken by, you know, litters rigged between horses back down to the Yellowstone River where there was a steamboat commanded by a, a really unusual individual, Grant Marsh. And when you read about his navigation of the Yellowstone River and the Missouri River and, and um, in the steamboat, the far west, which we have photographs of the steamboat, um, 
he just sounds like a remarkable person. But he, that's how they were supplying the army was by steamboat coming up the Missouri and then up the Yellowstone River. So did that River. speed up the communication about this disaster? And, and, and they got the wounded down there and, and put them on, they piled hay on the deck of the far west and laid the wounded down on the hay in the open. I assume they tried to cover them in some way. And then Marsh took off down the Yellowstone and down the Missouri River to Bismarck and made it in some record time. Nobody in steamboats ever done that stretch of river that fast before or since and got him down there. And then when he tied up at Bismarck, because that's where the, the hospital was and where the doctors were and they started unloading these guys. Then of course word came out. Then the report went to that that Terry had written, General Terry had written about the battle, went to the telegraph office, and then, then at that point, it was everywhere. Interesting. That's, but I they had to get to Bismarck to get to a telegraph I didn't realize line. that's how it went out. That's interesting. Well, the whole book is very, very interesting. I enjoyed reading this a lot. I want to, let me just, I do want to thank both of our guests for coming today. Professor Powers, Kevin let me add one thing that to, to make sure that we're not misrepresenting our book. This book is a guidebook to Custer and sites related to Custer that, that go back to West Point, to Monroe, Michigan, to New Rumley, Ohio, where he was born, where there are monuments, to the, bat the Gettysburg battlefield. Um, there's even a, a building in Austin, Texas that we mentioned, and um, that that was the purpose of writing the book. It's not a biography or a history of all of this, but a guide so that if you're interested in Kester, you could find out some, some find some of the places that he is uh, associated I'm with. I'm glad you brought that up. There's more in here than just this fascinating history, which by itself is worth the price of admission. There's a, they've done a lot of homework for people who want to see these sites, go to the museums, go to the battlefields, go to some of these other historical sites all around the West, and, and well, also back East as well. So that's in here. I mean, even phone numbers, if you want to make sure a place is open. So you get that as well with this book. Thank you both again. I want to remind the audience, this program is brought to you by the Denver Press Club and by the Colorado chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists. You can check out Press Club events at denverpressclub.org. Thank you.